The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Our main scripture passage for today is Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7 uh, through verse 12. So if you want to turn to Matthew 7, and then I will read for us. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Open to Matthew 7 this morning as we look at the final verses in the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've walked through the introduction, got to the main body of it at five, at chapter 5 and verse 20. After chapter 7 and verse 12, everything else we're going to cover over the next few weeks is really just conclusion and wrapping up. But what we are diving in today, Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12, that we just kind of lightly touched on last week, this is, this is the final section of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're settling in here one more time because these verses contain some final truths that we need to see about the greater righteousness. I hope by now it's hammered into your head what those words mean because that's what the entire Sermon on the Mount we've seen has been about. Like since the opening of Jesus' teaching, he has been calling us away from life in the kingdom of the world to life in his kingdom, which is a life of greater righteousness. Specifically, in Matthew 5 and verse 20, he calls us to a life of greater of righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, theirs was just an external righteousness. Then issue forth from anything internal, no affections for God, issuing forth in actions for God. And God calls us to a greater righteousness, a wholehearted righteousness, where our external actions do flow out of internal affections for God. Now, we've been talking about that for months, and I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, all of this teaching about greater righteousness, as Jesus showed us what it looks like in relation to the word, as he showed us what it looks like in relation to worship, as he showed us what it looks like in relation to the world, all of this teaching about greater righteousness has left me with some lingering questions. Questions which I believe are asked and answered by this final section, by the four truths that Jesus is about to lay out concerning the greater righteousness. This morning, I simply want to walk through these truths one at a time to, to not only answer some lingering questions about greater righteousness, but also to show how we are empowered to live it. So, Let's dive right in. We've got a lot to cover. Dive right in with truth number one, which honestly is the truth that raises the most amount of questions for me. Truth number one, we need to see the truth about perseverance. 
the truth about perseverance. Throughout the entire sermon, I said, Jesus has been calling us to this life of greater righteousness, and that's how he concludes the teaching section of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin at the end. Just look at verse 12. So, or better translation, more literal, therefore. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is, or we could translate it, this fulfills the law and the prophets. Now, last week we saw that the beginning word right here, therefore, it obviously connects verse 12 right here to the verses that come right before it, to verses 7 through 11. In other words, what it does is it makes that entire section, verses 7 to 12, where we are, it makes them the conclusion of the immediate passage right here in Matthew 7. You remember what we talked about last week? Matthew 7, 1 through 6, talked about not judging others with arrogant self-righteousness, but being humbly Christ-centered and discerning that way. We asked, how are we going to live that life of not being judgy, but being discerning? And this was the conclusion right here. We've got to ask the Father. He will empower us to not treat others differently than we treat ourselves, but to treat others the way that we ourselves want to be treated. We saw verse 12, verses 7 through 12, are the conclusion of what he's talking about right here in Matthew 7. But what we also need to see this week is that verses 7 to 12 actually pull double duty. They're not just summing up what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7. They're summing up what he has been teaching throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Verse 12, I can show that to you. Verse 12 shows that to us in two ways. First, with an inclusio. An inclusio, an inclusio is kind of like auditory brackets. All right? it, it's the same thing or similar things being said at the beginning of something and at the end of something, at, at the beginning and the end of a section of speech in order to show you the whole thing goes together. I do this when I preach. You probably catch it all the time. Just a moment ago, I said, let's look at truth number one, the truth about perseverance. I guarantee you, when we get to this the end of this section, I'm going to say something like, and that's the truth about perseverance. And auditory brackets, so you know all of that goes together. Well, right here, listen to how Jesus opened the main teaching section of the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5 and verse 17. Listen to it. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now he closes that section in 7.12. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. You hear the inclusio? Both places talking about fulfilling the law and the prophets. It's, it's Jesus showing us that he is summing up everything he's been talking about throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. He shows us that not just with the inclusio, but second, with a literal summary. Is that not what he's doing in verse 12? He is literally summing up. Like, like this, he says, sums up. It fulfills the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish you would do, uh, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Or probably the more common way you're used to hearing it: treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a memorable way of phrasing "love your neighbor as yourself." 
which is often throughout the New Testament quoted as a summary of the law. Galatians tells us that the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself, treat others as you would want to be treated. We, we, we call this the golden rule. I, I, I'm not sure why. Um, yeah, there's uh, rumor has it that a pagan Roman emperor in the second, the fourth century by the name of Alexander Severus. He wasn't a Christian, but he liked this saying so much, he had it emblazoned on his uh, wall, etched into his chamber wall in gold, hence golden rule. Nobody knows if that's true or not. But the point is, the point of it, he's summing up everything he said throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The point of this is very clearly, don't be centered on yourself. Don't be all about your own glory, like we've seen the Pharisees throughout the Sermon on the Mount. No, be transformed by the selfless love of Christ to love others selflessly. Treat, treat others the same way you'd want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't all about you centered on you like the Pharisees have been. No, Christ transforms your heart so that you actually become a person who pours out love that looks like his. Is this not an accurate summary of all we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Is this not an accurate summary of the greater righteousness to which Christ has been calling us, where our actions flow out of real affection? I treat others the way that Christ has treated me because it's flowing out of true affection. My heart has been transformed. And so what we see right here as he concludes the main teaching section is he is clearly calling us to, pers to persevere in this life of greater righteousness that he has laid out before us. Do you see that? Look at verse 12 one more time. Therefore, in light of everything I've been teaching you, let me sum it all up. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this fulfills the law and the prophets. Do this. Is that not what he's saying? Live this. Persevere in this life of greater righteousness of the kingdom that I have laid out before you. I know that's what he means because throughout the sermon, he has not merely said we should live this way. He has said we must live this way. Has he not? Again and again as he calls us to this life of greater righteousness where actions flow out of genuine affection for God. Has he not said not just you should live this way, you must live this way. Think back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 30, Jesus consistently was warning us that a life of hypocritical righteousness, one that's just external, is a life that's headed to hell. Do you remember he says that really explicitly? Therefore, it's not just that we should live a life of greater wholehearted righteousness, it's that we must. Or, Think back with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15. Remember those verses that come right after the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer? Where Jesus tells us if we hypocritically ask God for forgiveness while refusing to forgive others, what does he say? He says, you will not be forgiven. In other words, it's not just that we should live a life of wholehearted, greater righteousness by forgiving. No, we must. We must forgive. Or even just think back to last week in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Did we not see there that if we live judging others in arrogant self-righteousness, that we will have that same judgment turned back on us? We will, we will face 
the judgment of the only one who is truly righteous. In other words, it's not just that we shouldn't be arrogantly self-righteous, it's that we must not be. Time and time and time again, we're told we must persevere in the life of greater righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. This truth is not just found in the Sermon on the Mount. It is all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and it's over the entirety of the New Testament. This is Matthew chapter 13. I'll give you just a few more examples. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus tells a famous parable about a sower and some seed, where the seed is the word of God, and it falls on four different types of soil, three of which seem to receive the seed and grow, but only one perseveres in what is that communicating? Like Jesus clearly teaches that perseverance in the faith is evidence of real faith. Anything else is false, false faith. You want to hear it really clearly? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 10 speaks explicitly about this. Jesus warns, he says, many will fall away. Profess faith. Look like they received the seed. Got a little bit of growth going on. But the sun comes and scorches it. Persecution. And they flee. Where the weeds grow up and strangle it. Love for the things of this world. It was a false faith. Many will fall away, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures, persevere. If we had time, we could see this truth in every single book of the New Testament, culminating in all the promises of revelation that are made to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, perseveres. This is the truth about perseverance. Hear the inclusio? We're at the end of this one. Here's the truth about this is the truth about perseverance. We must persevere. We must persevere. If we're going to talk about truths, we're kind of wrapping up some different truths about this greater righteousness, we must persevere in it. Living a life of authentic affection for God that displays itself in how we live. This is the truth about perseverance in relation to the greater righteousness. We must persevere. I don't know about you, that question, I mean that truth causes some questions for me. Because perseverance isn't something that I feel like I am particularly good at. The primary question it causes for me because of that is, can I have any assurance at all that I'm actually authentically saved, that I have real faith in Jesus? I mean, can I have any assurance if my salvation depends on my perseverance? That's probably the most pointed way I can put it. Can I have any insurance if my salvation depends on my perseverance? And this is where we need to see truth number two that Jesus shows us in this passage. The truth about assurance. The truth about assurance. Look at the beginning of our text, Matthew 7 and verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you. How are you going to persevere in this life of greater righteousness? 
you're not. At least not in your own power. Is that not what we see right here? You're going to ask. Ask the Father. Seek Him. Knock on His door. And He is going to provide every ounce of power needed to live the life that He saved you for. That's the promise of verses 7 to 11. Which is why Christ's call to persevere in verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Do you see that logical connection right there? The Father, ask the Father. He's going to provide every ounce of power for you to persevere in the life of greater righteousness. Therefore, persevere in it. You can, because he provides all the power. Do you see Jesus' logic here? He can call you to persevere because he can assure you that all the power needed to do this is provided. He can assure you of that because he purchased it himself. Did he not? Through the cross, remember what he did on the cross in its fullness. Too often we only look at the cross partially. We look at the death of Christ in our place for our sin to justify us and make us right before God. Praise God, hallelujah, that it's true. It is not all that he purchased through his death. Through the cross, Christ not only died our death and our place, he also purchased for us new life empowered by his Holy Spirit who transforms our hearts, filling them with affections that overflow in our actions. Christ made us righteous through his death. Justification. He made us right with God. It does not depend upon you or your works at all. Christ made us righteous through his death. Justification. And And he empowers us to live righteously by his spirit. Sanctification. Don't separate those things. This is in our statement of faith as a church. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power. They go together. When justification is the root of your relationship with God, sanctification is always, always, always the fruit. Because Christ didn't just die at his death to justify us, but to purchase new life, power to sanctify us. His spirit transforms our hearts, filling them with affections that overflow in actions. The the life of the greater righteousness of Christ, in other words, is lived in power that's been provided. Put some text under that for you. 1 Peter 4.11. Let the one who serves, you're going to live serving the Lord. Let the one who serves, serve by the strength that God supplies. And he doesn't just supply it in some things. He supplies it in everything. 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace, all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. Why can you live this life that God has called you to live abounding in every good work? Because he, he makes all grace abound to you. He supplies it all. He began this work in you and he will bring it to completion. That's Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Have this assurance, shades, you will persevere because it doesn't depend on your power. It depends on his. 1 Corinthians 1.8, God will sustain you. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He will provide all the power to do everything he has called you to do. This, this truth, this truth that we're seeing, this is what, uh, this is what caused St. Augustine to say, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will. <laughs> Call me anywhere to do anything in my life. But grant it. Provide the power for it, because that's the only way it's happening. This truth that we're seeing, it's, it's the reason that we sing lines like this, from all I have is Christ. We, we sing, now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. This is the truth of assurance. What I want you to see right here in Matthew 7, Shades, is assurance is the emphasis of Matthew 7, 7. Do you, do you see that? Look, look at it again. Assurance is the emphasis right here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. It's assurance. Knock, and it will be open to you. Here, here's the deal. A lot of people are familiar with this text because of the famous triad right there. Ask, seek, knock. And when teaching this text, most people put the emphasis there, like on our action. They'll even kind of like break down asking, seeking, and knocking as if these are like three different things. They're not. They're synonyms for the same thing. Prayer. But the emphasis right here is not primarily even on our praying. The emphasis is on the Father's answering. I know that because the whole of verses 7 to 11 are focused not on us, but on the Father and His action. The emphasis is on assurance. Shades, do you see? Do you see the truth about assurance? We have assurance that we will persevere. We must persevere. And that sounds like bad news until the gospel good news of assurance. We have assurance that we will persevere because our Father will provide all of the power. Now, told you each of these truths causes new questions. And as soon as I go through this truth about assurance, it's likely causing some more questions for you. Namely, why in the world, if this is true, Jonathan, then God assures me he will provide the power for my perseverance. Then why the warnings about perseverance? Like, why warn us about the need to persevere if we're assured we will persevere? I got two answers for you. First, the warnings serve as a wake-up call to those who think they are children of God and are not. Like the Pharisees that we've talked about all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Completely thought they were children who belonged to the Father. These calls to perseverance are meant to shake and wake them. Look, look at verse 8 again. Verse 8 does not say everyone will persevere. It doesn't say that. It says everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, everyone who knocks. In other words, everyone who has faith. Is that not what asking, seeking, and knocking are? Running to the Father in faith. Turning away from yourself and what you think you can do to the Father and what only He can do. 
Everyone who has faith in the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. They are truly his child. And if they are not, then the warnings about perseverance may wake them up to that reality. That's the first reason for the warnings. But second, the warnings concerning perseverance, they're not just to wake up people who have false faith. They're for God's true children too. Why? Why why must we be warned to persevere if we are assured that we will? Because the warnings are one of the means, God has many, but they are one of the means by which God keeps his kids. Oh, he has promised to keep you, but he doesn't do that by snapping his fingers like Mary Poppins. You have a dynamic relationship, a real relationship with your father, and one of the means he uses to keep you are his warnings. They're one of the means by which he empowers us to persevere. So imagine I'm hiking with my kids along a canyon ridge because I'm an irresponsible father. One of my kids is getting a little too close to the edge. What will I do? I will warn them. The way you're headed leads to death. That warning's real. It's not fake. It's also meant as a means to keep them from falling, to keep them with me. Likewise, if you're God's true child, then he warns you. When you are wandering from the faith, he warns you. The way you are headed leads to death. That's true. That's not a fake warning. It's real, but it is also a means that God uses to keep his true kids from falling. Our God is a God of means. He works his power through things, things like warnings. And here's the deal. When your heart is soft, When these warnings about perseverance hit you hard, Shades, that should not weaken your assurance. That should strengthen it. Because that's how God's true kids respond to his warnings. Does that make sense? I have massive concerns every time we sit and we land on the words of Scripture that tell us we must persevere. It is going to land hard on many sensitive hearts. You're going to doubt and not have a shirt. When, when, when your heart reacts that way, when it's sensitive to the warnings of your father, it's because he's your father and you do belong to him. Don't let that sensitivity or softness weaken your assurance. Let it strengthen it. It is his sheep who hear his voice and respond, says John 10 and verse 27. It's his true children who respond to his warnings and run back to his side to find rest in his assurance. Do you see, Shades, do you see the truth about assurance? We have assurance that we will persevere. This is one of those truths that we need to see about the life of greater righteousness. We have assurance that we will persevere in the life of greater righteousness to which we are called. But I guarantee, even even after that plea, that, that some of us are still thinking, all oh, this talk about assurance, this isn't for me. It, it can't be. Jonathan, it can't be for me because I know me. I know I don't persevere like I should. My faith and my faithfulness is 
up and down, all over the place. Shades, so is mine. Do not be deceived by the fact that I'm required to preach to you every week, as thinking that means I stand on some kind of lofty pedestal, and, and just me and Jesus, we so close. I, I hope the rest of you catch up. That's what I'm trying to do. No, I don't stand on the platform for a reason because I'm not higher up than any of you. I don't stand at the middle for a reason because I don't belong at the center of anything that we're talking about. At the center of our room is the cross and the table, the symbols that most directly point us to the one who is the center, to Christ. My job is to come alongside you as a fellow broken person and to try and point you and me, all of us, back to him. I preach to myself more than I preach to anybody. You may be thinking, my faith and faithfulness go up and down. I'm all over the place. Honestly, I'm not really that good of a person. How can I know that this assurance is for me? Shades, you can know that it's for you because it doesn't depend upon you being deserving. It depends on your father being giving. In other words, it doesn't depend upon your goodness. It depends upon his. That's what we see in truth number three. Number three, see the truth about your father. See the truth about your father. Look again at verse eight. Everyone, everyone who asks, no qualifications on your goodness, your faithfulness, nada. Everyone who asks receives. And the one, whoever they are who seeks, finds and the one who knocks, doesn't matter where they've been or what they've done that's put them outside the door. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Why? Because the very next verse, verses 9 through 11, show that this doesn't depend upon our goodness. That's why everybody receives who asks. It doesn't depend upon our goodness. Verses 9 to 11 say it depends on God's. Look at it, verse 9. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is another argument from the lesser to the greater like we've seen before in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts with the lesser. He starts with earthly parents. And he says, which one of you? Here's a scenario. Your son asks you for bread, we'll give him a stone. This would have been a normal day-to-day -day scenario. Note, this kid is not asking for a luxurious gift. He asks for bread. In the next verse, he asks for a fish. He's basically asking for lunch. I mean, John 6, verse 19, when we read about the feeding of the 5,000, this is not what the little boy has for lunch. Apparently, he had some really great parents. He got two loaves, five fishes. Five loaves and two fish. I got that backwards. You know what I'm talking about. Right here, the kid is basically asking for daily provision. What's needed to empower life. Is this not what we are asking our Father for in this passage? Our asking, our seeking, our knocking right here, this is not just for anything that we want. No, we've seen. We are asking for our Father to provide the power to live the life He's called us to live, the life of greater righteousness. 
Father, stir up affections for you in my heart. Empower those. Like you say in Romans 5, 5, you pour out love, affection for you in my heart by the Holy Spirit. Do that. Transform my heart so that I live a life for you and for your glory. We, we need daily provision to empower that life. And what earthly father, being asked for daily provision, tricks his son, giving him something that looks similar to a loaf of bread, a stone, but it's, it's inedible, it's, it's useless. Or we get a similar example, verse 10, or if the son asks for a fish, what father of you will give him a serpent? In other words, you don't just give him something useless, you actually give him something that is harmful. You don't just not give him something that will sustain life, you actually give him something that can bring death. What what kind of parent would do that? Jesus' point is not that there are no bad parents. His point is that we all have a built-in instinct that no parent should be like that. And if even we, fallen humanity, know that, how much more so himself? That's exactly what he says in verse 11. If you then who are evil, fallen, broken in this world, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? From the lesser to the greater. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You can look at the parallel passage in Luke 11 and verse 13. It says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, he will provide you with power to live the life that he's calling you to live through his Holy Spirit. He will provide the power to live the life of the greater righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. You can have full assurance of this because it doesn't depend upon your goodness. It depends upon your Father's goodness. And as we sing, He is a good, good Father. You're not going to ask Him for bread and get a stone, even if it feels like it. Jesus is guaranteeing that to us right here. And Jesus can guarantee that to us because Jesus has lived this. He knows his Father's goodness better than any of us, especially when it comes to bread and stones. I gotta think that when Jesus speaks these words right here in Matthew 7 about bread and stones, I gotta think that his mind is drifting back to the events of Matthew 4, where he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And do you remember the first temptation? If you are the Son of God, if you've got a good Father, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In that moment, power was provided to Jesus to persevere. In the life of greater righteousness, power was provided to say no to Satan, precisely because his father gave him the bread he truly needed in that moment. He gave him his word. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. To many of us from the outside looking in, Jesus quoting that text in that situation has got to look like a useless stone. Jesus, you're starving. What you need is bread. I don't care what Deuteronomy 8.3 says. God gave you that scripture right now to sustain you. That looks more like a stone than it looks like bread. But to a starving Jesus, this was the bread he needed to be empowered to live the life of greater righteousness. Perhaps, perhaps 
He is right here in Matthew 7, thinking back on those instances in Matthew chapter 4. Perhaps it's thinking back on that battle with Satan, the serpent of old. Perhaps that's what leads him to give the next example of how your father is good. You're not going to ask for a fish and get a serpent, even if it feels like it shades. Even if it feels, through all your prayers, you're praying, you're crying out to the Father, even if it feels like you are still facing down the devil himself in the wilderness of your life, your good Father isn't giving you over to that serpent in that moment, but providing you with everything needed to defeat him. I promise you, he's giving you, I don't care if you think it's a stone or a serpent, he's giving bread and fish. He is giving you what's truly good, no matter what it looks like, because what he's giving you is Christ. Has, has this not been the promise of the Sermon on the Mount since the very first beatitude about the poor in spirit? What were we told there? Truly joyful. Truly joyful are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, truly joyful are those who cling to Christ no matter what it costs them, even if it makes them poor. Even if they face, when we get to the end of the Beatitudes, we're being told that they're truly joyful, even if they face persecution for righteousness' sake and lose their lives, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They still get Christ. True life so they're truly joyful because they know they know that no matter what they face their father isn't giving them stones and snakes he's giving them bread and fish he is providing them with all the power to persevere even if it's persevering through death itself my favorite text that says this quite explicitly is luke chapter 21 and verse 16 jesus promises his disciples some of you they will put to death verse 18 but no hair on your head will perish. Put that together. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. In other words, I'm providing what you need for true life. I'm not giving you stones or a snake, even on the day that death is dealt your way. I promise you on that day, death is gain. I'm providing you with all the power needed to persevere. Shades, you can be assured that that is for you because your father is good. Do you know that? Do you know that your father is good? Let me put it this way. As we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, passage after passage, text after text, do you believe that your father has been giving you bread and fish, not stones and snakes? Some of these texts are hard. Like when we were in chapter 5, talking about living in line with the word of God, and we talked about what his word says about sexuality. When you read this word and what it says about sexuality, do you believe your father is giving you bread and fish, not stones and snakes? When we read what it said about marriage and divorce, when we read what it said about loving your enemies, when we read what it said about heaven and hell, Jesus has a lot of things about hell that are really hard. Do you believe he's giving you bread and fish? Even if, even if in the moment it looks and feels like stones and snakes. Do you, in other words, do you believe that your father gives you good things in all that he gives you? 
Shades, when you encounter things in this word that are hard for you, hard to wrap your mind around, hard for you to trust, this is what you come back to. What I know is true, my father is good and he only gives me good things. And even if I can't see that right here, I trust it. Through his word, even the hard words that I don't understand, I trust he is providing the power to sustain my faith. How about, how about when we got to Matthew chapter 6 and we talked about worship? And we talked about how the greatest reward is not found in recognition. Which is what all of us seek so hard. This is why social media is such a successful thing. Jesus tells us to forsake it all. Don't live your life to be recognized by others. No. Jesus told us the real reward was in us recognizing him. Being in a real relationship where we don't seek for others to worship us, but we seek to worship him. Even if that costs us the recognition of others. Even if that costs us our reputation. Do you believe that that was your father giving you good things, bread and fish, not stones and snakes? We're here in this last little bit of the sermon we've covered where he talked to us extensively about our greatest treasure. As we talked about the treasures of this world and how you can't cling to them and to him. You can't do it. can't serve both God and possessions. It's not possible. Do you believe that your father said that not to trick you out of good things, but to give you the best thing? Himself. Shades. The entire Sermon on the Mount has been a call away from the kingdom of this world and a call into the life of greater righteousness in the kingdom of Christ, which it claims is the truly joyful life, no matter how upside down it looks. And your Father promises you all the power to live it. Because this is the truth about your Father. He's good. In relation to this life of greater righteousness, we're told we must persevere. He assures we will persevere. We can trust all of that, know all of that, because this is the truth about your Father. He is good. He gives what he promises. We have assurance that we will persevere because our Father is good. So that just leaves us with one last thing to ask, and that's one last question. What are we to do? It's great that all of that's true. We must persevere. We've got assurance that we will because our Father is good and he's promised the power. How do we receive the power that our good Father has promised us? The power that he's promised to provide for the life of greater righteousness. That's my, that's my final lingering question and it's answered by the fourth and final truth we need to see. Number four, the truth about prayer. The truth about prayer. Look at verse seven one last time, Shades. Ask Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I told you earlier that the asking, seeking, knocking, these are not three different things. These are three commands to do one thing, to pray. Why? Because prayer is what puts you in the posture of faith. Prayer is what practically 
daily, in reality, puts you in the posture of dependence, in a posture of reception. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking because I'm needing and I believe that you alone are providing. Shades, prayer is the practical daily means by which we receive the promised power because it puts us in that posture of reception. Prayer is something that Christ has called us to daily. Is that not what he did in the very middle, middle, the very center, the heart of the sermon where he taught us how to pray? He taught us that we needed to do this daily. At the center of the center of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, everything we need to follow you until your kingdom comes and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we live our lives by faith in the power that God provides and what puts us in that posture of faith is prayer. This is the truth about prayer. Shades, we have assurance. This is gospel good news. We have assurance that we will persevere. In this life, God has called us to the life of greater righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. We have assurance that we will persevere because our Father is good. So ask, seek, knock, pray. Ask for him to empower you. See if you don't receive. Seek. See if you don't find it. Knock. See if the door isn't open to you. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth about living the life of greater righteousness in the kingdom of Christ. We have assurance that we will persevere because our Father is good. So ask. Seek. Knock.